Welcome to the Get Social Dublin Invest in Your Community podcast series. I'm Michelle Acharity and in this series we'll be telling the stories of a number of social entrepreneurs in Dublin and the people they support. Why they started, what gets them up in the morning, what their biggest challenges are and why they need your support. Social enterprises are businesses that use their profits to improve the lives of people and create positive change in the community. Doing business with a social enterprise means you're making a real difference. To show your support for this podcast series, share your purchase or interaction with a social enterprise in Dublin on social media, along with the hashtag GetSocialDublin. This project was approved by the government with support from the Dormant Accounts Fund. In our third podcast, Get Social Dublin, are meeting with social enterprises that are on the ground with people who are recovering from addiction have experienced homelessness and may have been in contact with the criminal justice system. I would like to welcome Maggie Cluan, Training and Social Enterprise Manager at PACE, and Stuart Fraser, CEO of Frontline Make Change. And they're going to introduce themselves to you now. Maggie. Hi, Michelle, and thanks for inviting us along to this podcast today. I'm Maggie Cluan. I'm the Training and Social Enterprise Manager with PACE. And PACE is an organisation that works primarily with people who've been in touch with the criminal justice system. So everybody we work with really has a criminal conviction, um, which is a huge barrier to employment and all sorts of other important areas in your life. Um, So, yeah, that's why we're involved in social enterprise. Thank you. And Stuart? Hi, Michelle. Thanks for inviting me this afternoon. Yeah, my name's Stuart Fraser, the CEO of Frontline Make Change. Uh, Frontline Make Change is predominantly an adult uh, addiction treatment service in the community based covering the Dublin 8 area and based in Inchicore and Bluebell. Um, we also have our first social enterprise that we opened uh, in October 2020 called Frontline Bikes, uh, which gives practical work experience, training and employment to people who are in recovery from using drugs, but also probably I would say a bit the vast majority of people who have been involved with drugs also have criminal convictions. And can you, what I'd really like you to talk to me about is the main challenges in the sector and how you're able to achieve your social mission whilst you're trying to juggle revenue on all the challenges that you're facing. And because both of you would have a very strong remit around the creating employment as part of the social enterprise, as well as the product and service that you're trying to sell, what are the main challenges that you're facing on a day-to-day basis? Well, I can kick that off, I suppose, just after coming out of um, two and a half years of a pandemic and surviving, we faced many challenges, like every business. And I suppose as a social enterprise, um, we felt and certainly I felt um, the added pressure of the, the needs of the people that we work with. And how vulnerable they are and how they how vulnerable they are to isolation. And obviously then, you know, not being able to go to work is a huge issue for, for example, somebody um, like like a lot of the people that we're working with would be older men who've done a, a good stretch in prison and maybe are disconnected from family and from community. So coming to work is their life and their their lifeline. Um, so it was very important for us uh, to, to get through the pandemic, uh, which we did. Um, and we did do that by changing our route to market and by changing a lot of what we did. We were doing a lot of face-to-face um, meetings with customers and also um, we we 
pretty much went online overnight to try and survive. And that really worked for us. And we did a big social media campaign um, and the general public got behind us, actually. So we were promoting products um, that could be bought and put into your garden. Uh, whereas previous to that, we would have been very much targeted at the commercial market or local authorities. Um, so that was our first sort of experience of going out there and really, really telling people about us as a social enterprise and what we did. And we got a very positive response. Uh, so I suppose we turned a challenge into a, an opportunity there. Just to name one, maybe yeah. Stuart will let you get a word in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of funny. We, we, we had that kind of different experience, I suppose, for the nature of our business that we set up in pandemic. Um, we opened our retail unit uh, at the beginning of a level five lockdown. Um, which most businesses shut, we were opening up. Um, however, we were allowed to stay open because we were seen as an essential business because a lot of times people didn't want to transport, they didn't want to use public transport because of COVID. So that pushed a lot of people back onto bikes. So that actually was a bonus for us. Um, but the you know the bravery of the staff to go in day in, day out and still be customer facing was incredible. But I think the original question, Michelle, you're saying about mm. like, you know, what the chart, you know, we're, I mean, I'm a nurse by trade, you know what I mean? I've looked after people, like, do you know what I mean? Like moving into business realms is completely different. It's a completely new thing. Um, I've never done it before. So I'm an entrepreneur by default, you know, to try and solve this kind of social problem. Um, but I think that is a, that's a massive challenge because when you move that focus into business, um, you've got to be really careful about mission drift, you know what I mean? That you're, you're not going too far down the business route. Okay, we know we have to survive. We know we have to be competitive. We know we have to earn money to get to, to give employment. But we have to um, balance that, and it's a very, very fine balancing act on balancing that with the social mission, that we don't drift away from that. Mm. So that was... Big one mm. for me. And is that a constant stress, do you think, for social enterprises that whilst you're trying to constantly achieve your social mission, you have this pressure that you're looking mm. at the profit margins and looking at revenue? And is it sometimes, as in through the pandemic and then now, as we're looking at an unsecure, perhaps future financially, mm. there's a lot of worries, concerns in the general public. Are you feeling the pressure of, again, having to look at what you would like to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis, but then looking at what the income and revenue streams are and looking at your business model? I would... Totally echo and um, agree with everything Stuart has just said there. Just going back to the solving mm. a social issue, because when we when we started the social enterprise in 2014, like PACE has been around since 1969, mm. we started the social enterprise in 2014 as a response to a problem we saw for the people that we work with. We didn't know we were starting a social enterprise. <laughs> Two years later, yeah, we yeah, figured, exactly. you know, yeah. and like back in, in 2014, mm. there was nowhere to go um, with this idea that like there was a, there was a couple of local uh, social enterprises uh, Speedpack were very good to us and um, Irish Social Enterprise Network were a, a, a couple of volunteers who helped us get off the ground as well but like there was there was no support in terms of funding really there was the CSP which yeah. was I could tell you about it, Painful. but then I'd have to kill you. Like it was such a secret right. club and getting in into knees. that club. Still is. Yeah. <laughs> getting in and in fairness, we're in that club now so, and we're, we're yeah. very appreciative of that. But um, I suppose that's one of the one of the biggest challenges really is that, yeah. you know, we, we're starting out trying to solve a social issue. And for us, that's getting people into the, the workplace. And we responded to that by creating jobs and 
by creating jobs, we're making products. And if people don't buy our products, then our jobs are at risk. And that's a constant challenge for us mm. as a social enterprise. So we need people to buy our products. And add it in that perhaps who you are trying to create the employment for have already had a number of failed interventions with various other perhaps employment or education. And so the pressure is more on you to try to make that this experience actually work so they don't embed the feeling of failure again. So it's a constant pressure. People, when they talk to me about pace of frontline make change bikes, often say that they feel that you're providing what they would perceive to be a missing link, something that's not there as a bridge between. And that sometimes somebody that may be with you for a time, then they may go on to something else. And how do you work with that as in, you know, is that another pressure in running a social enterprise that you're you're bringing people in, you're trying to provide the extra supports to maintain that employment, you're creating the employment, you're then trying to maintain the employment, you're then trying to add additional wraparound supports. And then perhaps at the other end of that journey, you're then looking for somewhere else that they can go so that the next cohort of people yeah. can come forward. And so how are you dealing with that? I think, yeah, it's really difficult um, because I think you got to look back to startup and startup to me is the real pressure point. You know, you're, you're basically putting a bunch of lads that have not been in the labour market for a very long time and you're trying to mould them and train them into really, really good employees, which they have become. But that journey is even more difficult than mainstream uh, businesses. You know, we don't have the, the, the luxury of picking your, you know, your master's A-grade student. You know what I mean? You, you, you're basically taking with people who have got enthusiasm to get their life back together. And that startup period is really, really hard because you you got to try and make your margins. you got to sell, to, as, as Maggie was saying, to keep staying in business, stay afloat. But you try to train them. You try to get people to turn up in time, take direction. Uh, you know, all of that, all of these challenges, and we, and we have employment boundaries of rubber. <laughs> they mm. get stretched. You know what I mean? Because we know that this is a transition. and But if we really are serious about breaking the cycle of addiction and the cycle of recidivism, you know, we have to, we have to get them through that initial, that period. But the pressure is, is massive. And um, so it, it is really, really difficult. And you have to, you, you're under more scrutiny as well. So the people that bring their bikes back and they're saying, well, oh, well, you know, <laughs> is this bike going to fall apart on me? Mm. You know, mm. you know, it's, oh, it's a bunch of these drug users that put it together again. And so you, they still have these preconceived ideas. Mm. Uh, and so you're under even more scrutiny, you know what I mean? And more returns come back, you know, it's just, oh, well, I'm not sure, you know. But, you know, we deal with it and we've got over it and now I'm really proud of a lot of them. So how do we move them on? Well, in some ways, it's a bit growth for me. I know that we can't employ everybody that comes through Frontline, but I would like to see for a stable period, uh, the people that are employed with us really become community leaders, you know what I mean? And be leaders in... Uh, you know, people who have experience with the criminal justice uh, sector be leaders, uh, people that have been involved in uh, addiction and stuff. And because I think they're the they're the lighthouses, you know what I mean, for the community. And if you can put these leaders in to say, look, if I can do it, you can do it. Do you know what I mean? Here's the way to do it. But the only way we can get more people and more people trained is twofold. One is to grow the business so that we can employ more people, which is great. And we can actually self-finance that you know, from our profit. Do you, do you think, Stuart, from like when people are on their journey with you, do you think you're inspiring or encouraging an entrepreneurial flair? 
Like, do you think, do people then think, oh, there are lots of opportunities That's by right. having that, you yeah. know? Yeah, absolutely. So that was, thanks for the for reminder there. So what was the second, the second piece is, we've got, we've, and it's split up into a couple of bits. You know, one could be working with business in the community. So, so the first bit is like saying, okay, why don't we train, you know, really highly skilled mechanics for the private sector? Let's work with businesses in the community. Um, let's get uh, placements for our graduates where the, the, the you know, Cycleways or Decathlon or Halfords can actually look before they buy. You know, get them to make a commitment to us that they will take on the guys that we train up to high level of diploma and then take them on and look at them. But let them say if they like what they see, that they'll employ people within their franchises. Do you know what I mean? And maybe take on a certain number negotiated a year. Do you know what I mean? So that would get them into mainstream. Um, also talk to a lot of the little smaller enterprises that of bike shops that are out there and do similar negotiations with. So, you know, people can look before they buy and, the, and they're in the shop window and they can prove themselves. You know, I think that would be really, really important. But I think the second bit is what you were saying there is about if we see that individuals coming through have entrepreneurial flair, you know, maybe their pathway is not going to be there, but maybe it's going to be about how to start your own business. You know, and they might have a different business idea than the one they're in. But what they are doing is making that bridge from prison, the couch, treatment, you know, back into routine, taking direction, scaling up, turning up and work and all of that sort of stuff. So it's a, it's a, it's a real process. You know. So a lot of what your social mission would be or what the social return would be is often that what I'm hearing is that you're also creating an opportunity for people to take the time to upscale, to train and to also look for themselves if it's a pathway to employment or a pathway to their own enterprise or self, uh, self-employment within a business that they would launch themselves. And that we're seeing a lot of international organizations that have yeah. very successfully used similar yeah. business models but then they give the option to actually now you can seek employment right. or you can go ahead because they need to move on to the next kind of yeah. wraparound services. So what I'm hearing is it's about creating pathways and that might be for people to seek employment themselves afterwards or it may be for them to actually set up a business themselves. How do you find that, Maggie? Yeah, we're working to a very similar model in that, um, like just to go back to, I suppose, where do I see social enterprise fitting in in the whole like we're a work integrated social enterprise and in an ideal world we wouldn't exist but mm. because because of the the real stigma attached to you know having been involved in addiction or involved in crime there is you know there are barriers there and employers are reluctant to to employ the people that we're working with. So social enterprise is the buffer, is that time between, you know, the challenges you've been facing in life and getting your life back on track. And that's very much what we're about. And we're very much about dem- giving people the opportunity to demonstrate their talents and, and skills. And what Stuart says there, you know, somebody coming in to say, oh, well, that, you know, somebody with addiction fixed my bike. Will I be safe on it? You know? They are real views and um, attitudes towards some of the people that we're working with. So social enterprise gives Joe Public and, and the communities that, that our, our people are going back to live in um, an opportunity to see the skills and talents. And we're demonstrating that by all our products being all over the city, uh, like our flower planter boxes and our garden and our street furniture all over the city. And they're highly really well made high quality products um so you know and potential employers get to see 
exactly, you know, what they're making. Um, and, and a really important part of social enterprise as well is that we are transitional. We are promoting people moving through our enterprises, which, again, is unusual and is a challenge as challenge for us as employers, because, you know, our best people, we're pushing them out the door. We're having cake and we're, we're, we're you know, we're having parties when they when they get jobs in mainstream employment. No other employer does that. They're sitting back on how am I going to cope without them? And we're doing that too, but we're celebrating the fact that they're moving on and creating a space then for us to take somebody new in who needs the support that we can offer them. Okay. And so when I'd have conversations, as I said, within the general public or different parts of what I would see as the target audience of social enterprise, often people say to me, okay, we realise there's no silver bullet, but themselves want to know how they could get more involved, how they could support you. And so they're asking me, well, what would help with the issues that would come up for your service users on a daily basis or how are you tackling this or how does it happen with your employees? What are they saying? What are the additional challenges? And is that something that you're saying, no, we've got this, but what we do want is, so I know Maggie, you had been saying, well, to buy, that you want them to come. And so it's that you're looking for people to purchase what you're selling. And Stuart, it might be the same as in for the bikes, you're saying, well, okay, you can donate the bikes, we'd actually like you to come here for repairs and come here to buy a bike, an upcycled bike. But what else, as in, is it, when do you feel in the community, what's the when people realise to get them past that perhaps prejudice or preconceptions when they come in and actually meet people and feel rather than saying, oh, do you know what your costs for this, that and the other and that people can have so many statistics at hand but not thinking about the, the good stories. How do you do that storytelling of the positive side? Yeah, well, I think uh, <laughs> some of my uh, participants and employees have become media stars. <laughs> they do media a lot better than I do. Um, yeah, look, I think it's... Uh, you know, I think I think what we don't want to do is celebrate the, um, the 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 achievements rather than the backstory. You know what I mean? And stuff like that. And I, I think I was up in Belfast with Maggie um, the other week there, and it's the first time I heard it, it being coined as uh, "I'm someone with a lived experience," and I really liked it. I really liked that phrase because I wouldn't say oh, "I'm an ex-prisoner" ever. <laughs> it was just so "I'm somebody with a lived experience," and I thought it was a really nice way of putting it. And they didn't dwell in the horror of the backstory. And sometimes we can all get fixated in the horror of the backstory. Oh, God, that must have been so terrible. Oh, me. But instead, you know, it should really be about us celebrating the story now. Yeah, my, my backstory was really tough. It was really hard. And I had loads of challenges. But I'm not that person anymore. I'm now front and centre with a trade looking for a job. And I think, and this is how far I've come, and I think that's really good. I mean, but the challenges that some of our guys had, I mean, we, we had very unusual. We had two, two single-parent uh, dads, do you know what I mean? And they really struggled with childcare, and they didn't know where. So we, luckily we had the childcare facility that we could take the kids in, you know what I mean, while they were at work. But that was, that's massive. You know, and it was, it's stuff like that that hinders people's recovery, you know what I mean? So you need, mm-hmm. that's why frontline for me is amazing, because... You've got a lot of these kind of wraparound services already in place there to help people make that transition. And that's, that's what we need. But we need, if, if the government's serious about um, saving money, because <laughs> that's what they like doing, they have to invest with these early interventions to stop, stop recidivism, to stop relapse. But to make them succeed in that journey, you need to wrap around even more supports for them because other they'll fail. Do you know what I mean, and that's the that's the reality because the transition these guys <laughs> are trying to make is uh, is incredibly difficult, you know, and will continue to be so. 
And currently, do you feel for both of you, do you think the social return investment is in the forms, what you're to funders, what you're capturing the information, the financial data? Are you getting to, are you able to capture that story of the social return on investment as in the multiplier, that ripple effect is now for those lone parents? So it's mm-hmm. not only the story of, well, this is somebody who hasn't relapsed into addiction. This is someone that's not going back into a prison. This is someone who's shown is a role model in the community, but also a father is showing that you can have a second chance. You can make mistakes, but that doesn't label you. That doesn't limit you for life that there are. Well, I think, well, I know we could be better at capturing that part of it. I suppose we're, we're very, um, we're very focused on the people that are working in our social enterprise and then moving on. And certainly the, the cohort that we're working with, people with criminal convictions, when they do turn their lives around and they move on, they're not looking back, they're looking forward. And so they're in, therefore, you know, in two years time, me trying to find out how their life is going, you know, they don't want to talk to me because life is great. And mm. and that's the way it should be. So capturing the. Um, you know, get, getting real statistics about success stories and all that, we do that anecdotally because yeah. we're a small community anyway yeah. and we hear how people are doing and if they're not doing well. And, you know, we, we get a lot of people coming back because it didn't work out and that's fine. Come back, we'll have another go. And what do you need? And put the supports in place and, you know, try and help them get back on track. But um, I suppose we're, um, because the people that we're working with have criminal convictions that we can be a little bit media shy as well. And, and like, mm. you know, everybody loves the mugshot and it is great. It's a great idea and it is, it's a great story and it's a great photograph and all of that. But there's, you know, the reality is there's, you know, there's workers, baristas who are just going to work and, you know, they don't want to be day in, day out saying this mm. is a social yeah. enterprise, you know, and they're just going to work and, you know, we like to leave them just going to work. So it is difficult for work integrated social enterprises like ourselves because we do need to promote, obviously, um, but we, we still need to be very mindful of the people that we're working with and their privacy. Yeah. And I think the for me, it's like, um, OK, you know, we do have to make. It's almost like health. Remember when health won the argument about preventative medicine, you know what I mean, or early screening for cancer care or whatever. You know, the, the argument was, well, look, if you get screened earlier, you stop the critical care that has to, that costs loads of money down the end of the line. You know, so we pick up early, we have shorter treatment modalities and we save money. That's why investing in early interventions works, right? And to me, it's, it's the same thing. You know, we need to get that early intervention when people first offend or when people uh, first start picking up drugs. But we know that we have to make the coherent argument to politicians around investment. So the social return on investment that we all know in the story, I always love today, and if somebody was a year in Mount Joy and, you know, there's about seven grand in Mount Joy for one year plus associated Garda costs plus court costs, you're talking about over 100,000. You know, um, it'd be about, well, a CSP programme is 19,000, so... So for every euro that you invest within this treatment or rehabilitation job, you know, you're saving five euro back in the long term. And and basically, it's not even just stopping there. You, need, you have to say, well, OK, that person is now picking up a wage. That person is now getting PRSI contributions. That person is now paying tax. That person is now paying his landlord. That person has got his TV license. That person is buying stuff at the local shop so he's contributing to the economy. So that whole argument of circular economy, even though they're investing on this guy, 
you know what I mean? This guy's putting his money back into the system. So they're getting it back. Do you know what I mean? So that to me is the, the, the no-brainer, again, to policymakers. Look, if you're really, really serious about um, addressing these problems, you have to mm. resource it properly because you will get it back. Because we will do it better and we know how to do it. So we can we can solve this problem and you'll get the money back. <laughs> do you know and, what I mean? And so, Stuart and Maggie, on that note, so if we were putting a call out to policymakers, what would make in the immediate and in the longer term, and that we're hearing a lot about, well, would it be multi-annual funding? Is there other ways to make it easier? Because I understand from talking to you both that also a lot of, apart from the operational and strategic, it's that mm. constant pressure of the revenue. But then if you're constantly applying and filling in forms, that can be very bureaucratic and very strenuous. And it's prioritising between competing resources, how you will, what you will resource. So sometimes you have to miss a funding opportunity because a job needed to be done and you need to be there. So what would you say to policymakers? What, what, what would be the most helpful? If a policymaker is listening to this, what should they be thinking about doing for you? Come and, come and spend an hour in a room with me and Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we've got a big list. The, look, if, if, I, if I was a private entrepreneur and I wanted to set up a business, I could walk down into Enterprise Ireland, I could breeze in, can say, I've got a great idea for an app. And they say, right, okay, how much do you need? Oh, I need this for that, I need this for that. You know what I mean? That they'll get um, all the the business supports in the world will be there for them. They'll get these startup incubator grants that'll all be given to them. All they need to do is send back a receipt. You know what I mean? And that's it. So it's very fluid. Um, they know that in business, cash is king. You know that, that you know you have to have flow of cash to to keep things going. Um, and it's it just seems a bit more malleable and a bit more supportive. You know what we get is. Scrutiny. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't get scrutiny. We should get scrutiny because it's public money, and I, I would, you know, absolutely, for, totally, 100% for that. But it's the level of bureaucracy and tape that we have to go through. Do you know what I mean? To me, has to be made a little bit more malleable, or they need to bring in uh, the civil servants that are administering this to actually handhold us through the initial stages, especially at startup, because start startup your business can can succeed or fail in a very, very short period of time. And so you need that level of support. And remember, with the CSP that they're giving us, you know what I mean? They're, they're giving you a manager and two full-time equivalents. Two of the full-time equivalents are people that are on your social mission. So you're that one manager, you know, <laughs> on not a lot of money, has basically got to manage these two people. He's got to then do all the reporting of what, all the finances that even... You know, accountants struggle with, you know what I mean? And he then also um, got to make the business work. And so the stress and pressure on anybody at a startup, with, we're already starting a, a, not on a lane, level playing field because of the employees we have. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's why I think a lot of social enterprises fail in the first year mm. because they just do not, it's too much, it's too big. I know from our personal experience, you know, we, we run a busy addiction service, childcare service, you know what I mean? And getting pulled to set up the social enterprise was probably one of the most amazing things I've ever done in my life. It was brilliant. I loved it. But I realised the pressure of what that takes now to set a successful business up. You know, that's 12-hour days, you know what I mean? Just really going the extra mile, mm. you know what I mean? And on that note, Stuart and Maggie, if I could ask you, and maybe Maggie first, so we see a lot of social entrepreneurs are exhausted because yeah. they're trying to run a business, but then they feel so guilty because 
if they don't do that extra hour, if they don't apply for that, they can immediately see the lives that they feel that's impacted as opposed to just hitting a, a profit margin if we're talking about the trip, triple bottom line. Yeah. Maggie, what gets you up in the morning? What keeps your passion and your determination to succeed? Oh, wow. Um, I Well, I love my job. Um, I absolutely agree with everything that Stuart just said and he's just brought me right back to, yeah, God, the startup was such a phase, such a yeah. difficult phase. Um, and it has improved over the last eight, eight years or so since we started. Obviously, um, Department of Rural and Community Development have really raised the bar and, you know, they've they really have done a lot. Um, but like running, running, running a service for vulnerable people and trying to start a business at the same time, as Stuart has just said, like, yeah, I don't know how any of us actually achieved that and then to stay in business and then to grow it as yeah. we have done in pace with uh, and with the mugshot as well. But what was your actual question? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So, so I had said, what, what gets you up in the morning? Oh, yeah. and you said yeah. you love your job. Cup yeah. of coffee, right? I do. I do really. It's the people that I work with and to see, I suppose, not to get too corny, but just to see people just really the resilience in people to ch- to make the necessary changes in their lives with everything going against them. Um, and I suppose that's, you know, I suppose you, you were saying what do could policy makers do to help? Um, so that's what gets me up in the morning. But what policy makers can do to help, I suppose, um, like our, we're at the level now where we're looking at e-tenders and when we can, when we find a minute to do that. <laughs> so I would like to see that process um, being a little bit more inclusive for social enterprises where like most social enterprises are are small businesses, right? Um, so bidding on e-tenders is out of our reach a lot of the times. So if it would if it if it was made easier to maybe buddy up or partner up with bigger organizations, a little bit of work around procurement um, needs to be done uh, so that there is a minimum percentage, let's say, like certainly in the public sector that any tenders that they put out, let's say 10% of it needs to be inclusive of a social enterprise. So there is very basic minimum po- uh, re- rules and regulations that policymakers can put in there straight away uh, to ensure that social enterprises get a slice of the pie. Um, was there something else? And really, yeah, it's just it's buyer products. Like you, there's nothing better you can do to help a social enterprise, uh, work integrated social enterprise that's offering goods and services than to, to buy our products okay. and keep to people in jobs. purchase directly from you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and Stuart, what gets you out of bed in the morning? <laughs> keeping your passion gone. Yeah, look, I, I know it does sound corny and me and Maggie are probably soppy old sods, but uh, <laughs> um, it is really the, the people we see in front of us, you know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, when a lot, you know, you know the lads that work for me and the d- you know, the one guy, it's, the, it's that, that transformation, you know, and I'll speak a little bit at the launch on Friday because, you know, these guys all met in a drop-in in 2015. Now they're all full-time employees. I mean, it's just, that is just amazing. And one of the guys was, you know, he was, he was I think he was down a bit, he wouldn't, he's, he, he's already given me his blessing that I can use this story, but he was, he was down a bit seven and a half stone and he was driving, you know, he had a two-year-old in tow, you know. And, now seeing him in his own gaff, his own flat, kids doing really well, he's doing well, everything's great, it's a happy ending, you know, and so yeah, 
Nice. Mm. Those are the success stories. No, no, the the people that you yeah, can. Yeah, absolutely. The, and that one thing. You know what I mean? Like, you know, these, and we do it every day. We, we do it with different people. And I think, you know, that is the best reward in the world. Mm. Well, we, we just had, um, like, it, it, they're, they're really, really big wins. Okay. But yeah. they're, they're small when I say it out loud. Like, we just had one person move into mainstream employment after a very long sentence and after major challenges in their lives. And the transition, it was, um, they, they were very scared because they were so used to working within the criminal justice system. And now they were moving into mainstream employment. Now, it was it was a very difficult transition to try and find him a job, but he had to move on like it was time or it was never going to happen. And actually just. Um, but somebody I work with bumped into them on Saturday and they're they're fantastic. The job is going well. Their life is great. They look healthy. And they're just really having a good time and, and they've moved on with their lives. They don't need us. Yeah, and that is absolutely brilliant. brilliant. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. Maggie and Stuart, I'd like to thank you for giving time out of your very pressurised schedules to come along and talk to us and to share those stories of hope when people often feel the problems that you're trying to solve are entrenched and there isn't solutions, but you both have outlined today a number of ways that you're managing to solve the problems. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for listening to Get Social Dublin, Invest in Your Community. If you'd like to listen back to any of our episodes, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.